It's 7.30, Iron Sports. We do have our guest of the evening on the on the line. It's Danny Tarkanian. Danny, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Ira, what do you got for, for Danny? So, Danny, um, I finished your book this this uh, weekend, uh, Rebel with a Cause. You wrote about your father, Jerry Tarkanian, the legendary coach at Fresno State, well, mainly UNLV, but also he coached at Fresno State and Long Beach State. Uh, but I, I loved how you, I mean, I grew up with the UNLV team. So that's what I grew up, and I know you were the point guard on that on that team. But talk about, I just to let our listeners know, how big was that UNLV team in Las Vegas? Like, give some of the stories about people just don't think realize could one basket one college basketball team be as big as that team was yeah well and it wasn't just one team it was from the the, the 19 years of my father's career most every year was like that in, in the late 70s they only had a 6700 seat uh stadium or arena and nobody can get a ticket they used to have a pass gate uh, list that they would let my dad add people on, and they, those people would sit in the aisles. One of them would be was Frank Sinatra's son, the bodyguard, Frank Sinatra's bodyguard son, and he. Uh, and they, they ended up cutting off the pass list, and Frank Sinatra went ballistic. So my dad had to go all the way to the president of the university and say, "This is for Frank. We got to get his, his bodyguard son back into the game." Uh, Frank Sinatra was a huge fan. Many of the big celebrities. Uh, that ended up uh, watching uh, the Lakers and Showtime were running Rebel fans at the uh, at the uh, late seventies, and uh, it was a great atmosphere. Uh, it was uh, the pregame show was ahead of its time. It started off with a light show and it turned into a fireworks show and laser show. Now you see a lot of the NBA teams copying that. They had Gucci Row where the real uh, um, expensive seats were, where the celebrities sat, like uh, Showtime and the Lakers. Uh, you couldn't get a ticket to the game. In fact, when they went to the Final Four in 1977, they stopped gambling at the Tropicana Hotel for the first time since John F. Kennedy's assassination. Everybody in Las Vegas lived and died Rebel basketball. And the, the teams you'll probably talk about, the national championship team and the one after that was undefeated that lost to Duke. You know, when they won the national championship, the entire community was in a celebration mood for almost a full year. And when they lost to Duke the next year, for months, you walk around town, everybody was sad, depressed. You can walk with their heads down. It was amazing to see the effect it had on so many people. Yeah, I mean, I remember that 18, I was in law school during, and I know you're a lawyer also, but I, I, um, I went to law school and I, we did not have ESPN in the one, I cannot believe I was lived somewhere where I did not have ESPN, <laughs> which is shocking to me. But I would have to run down at this pizza place because they always play on ESPN2. I think we had ESPN, we didn't have ESPN2, and they play on ESPN2, and I'd watch those games and and it was just the most between Greg Anthony and Stacey Ogman, just the, the most exciting, explosive basketball team I've ever seen. And I think the one thing is that people don't respect is that they not only did they they beat Duke for the, the win the 89-90, they were the champions for that. Then they come back. And I was at Duke when that happened and we were watching it and Leitner and everybody lost. Then they come back undefeated the whole year. And when they beat Duke, everyone's like, well, what was that? That, that might have been one of the greatest Final Four games ever between this great UNLV team and this legendary Legendary, the Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, Grand Hill Duke team. Yeah, they were two. We ended up playing back to back. The first time, you know, we won by 30 points in the largest margin of victory in the championship game. And then the next year, UNLV was a better team, but so was Duke. Nobody realized how great Grand Hill was, and Leitner and Hurley were a year older. And then Duke upset us by two points. And uh, it was just an amazing game, back and forth game. Uh, and you got to tip your hat off at Duke. Uh, they showed a lot of uh, courage to come back uh, and win the next year. 
And we're talking to Danny Tarkanian, the uh, son of Jerry Tarkanian, the former UNLV coach who has a book called Rebel with a Cause. Great, great book. If you love college basketball, it really just brings back a lot of memories. Just a tremendous book. Um, But your dad started coaching, and you spent some time in this, coaching high school. I mean, a lot of these coaches now, they they play in the NBA, they go right into coaching, or even they play college and they're like the video coordinator. But your dad started coaching in high school, working that out. Talk about his background in high, like what did working in high school and being this, this this superstar high school basketball coach help him later to become one of the greatest coaches of all time? Yeah, you know, he's, he was not like most of the major, uh, the big uh, famous coaches that were successful because he, he was not a very good player. You know, Bobby Knight, these others, they were all Americans. Uh, he was not, he was a backup on a bad Fresno State team. He didn't play for a very good program. Fresno State was below average when he was there. And he didn't have a mentor. Uh, so he started at the bottom. He worked his way up. But what really helped my father was his background and how he was able to translate what he experienced growing up to uh, the kids that he ended up coaching. My father was discriminated as an, an Armenian immigrant uh, living in the Central Valley of California at the time. Very poor. He was a poor student. Uh, he got in trouble off the court. So when he got into high school and then junior college basketball, he started recruiting kids just like him. Uh, ones that many other schools wouldn't touch, uh, the ones that have got kids that are the poor inner-city African-American kids that got in trouble off the court and were bad students. And my dad was able to relate with them, motivate them, become very close with them. And he did so because he, he, he had an open-door policy where kids can come to his office at any point, talk to them about any problems they had. They were always over the house where my mother was cooking them dinner and um, working with them with the studies. And uh, my dad was very loyal to them. When they would get in trouble off the court, my dad supported them. And because of that, the players were very loyal to him, and they played very, very hard. And he was able to get these incredible athletes who um, nobody else can coach to play together as a cohesive team and play harder than anybody else. And then, like, when I'm reading the book, I, I know your dad from UNLV, but the Long Beach State years, just amazing. Like, every year, ranked in the top five in the country, uh, yeah. t- playing uh, UCLA in the NCAs three years in a row. And this is the, the great UCLA teams. I mean, it was just, again, going against John Wooden, just to take that program and become this national power, as you said, by recruiting players that nobody else wanted. Uh, just, just tremendous, that, that, what the job he did at Long Beach State. You know, my mom and father both felt that the greatest success he ever had was at Long Beach, much greater than what he had at UNLV, because UNLV had some resources. Long Beach had no resources. They were Division II program before he got there. My father used to joke and say that most major college programs spend more money on stamps than they do Long Beach does in the entire athletic program. Uh, and they had they, they only had seven or eight scholarships. Biden schools had up to upwards of 15 to 20 at the time. Um, so it was a very difficult time. But as you mentioned, he brought in a lot of junior college kids, kids that had had problems off the court, uh, ones that you, it wasn't a kid UCLA recruited uh, that was playing at Long Beach State. And in his third year there, they lose to UCLA by two in the regional finals for a trip to the Final Four. It was the closest game UCLA had in their entire seven-year run of national championships. Uh, so they had a they had a really going great. In fact, if they weren't in the same um, the, uh, region as UCLA, they would have been a Final Four then. Back then, you had, uh, the Western teams had to play in the Western regionals, and same with the uh, North, South, and West teams, East teams. Right, and it was, but you know, he's loyal. I mean, the one thing about you spend some time in the book about, and I'm always always interested in coaches is that. 
UNLV wanted, came to Long Beach State three times and begged him to be the coach, and he turned him down three times. And only until the, he didn't like one, what he read, so I think a Long Beach State president said about him, they decided to take the UNLV job. But even then, when he was at UNLV, like the Lakers offered him the job. Like he he could. I mean, you're reading the book. He's like Indiana offered him a job. He really could have gone any school in the country and been the coach there because uh, he, he just never lost. And so, it talk to me about what he was thinking about in terms of why he stayed at Long Beach State so long, and then why he stayed at UNLV and didn't didn't go to the Lakers or any of the other jobs he was offered. Yeah, loyalty was the most important thing that my father, he was very loyal to his players. They were very loyal to him. He used to say to me all the time, uh, you can never uh, teach a, cr- uh, a crook not to steal. You know, you can teach a crook not to steal, but you can't teach a disloyal person to be loyal. And he, and he always thought loyalty was so important. And Long Beach had been very good to him until that president came um, um, and uh, really wasn't very good to my dad and that allowed him to leave without feeling disloyal. And then he went to UNLV and uh, they were they supported him, the entire city, the administration through his battles with the NC2A. And so he turned down the Lakers job with Magic Johnson coming and he told everybody who listened that the Lakers were going to win the NBA championship with Magic and they only, only won five of them. <laughs> my dad knew what he was talking about. Um, and then, so get. I know your dad is famous for, and I think you and you didn't. You spelled it out in the book. It's like, look, college basketball, and we're go, we're dealing with it right now. We have a team like Kansas that's number one in the country that has uh, all the NCAA issues with Adidas and those things. But back in the day when your dad's coaching, the NCAA is just investigating your dad constantly at Long Beach State. When you have no money, your dad didn't even have money to take a recruiting trip. Uh, whereas uh, these yeah. other teams had, like you and UCLA and Kentucky, just you know, just were paying players, but your dad couldn't do anything. And and then the NCAA would not investigate any of the big teams, but only would investigate Long Beach State and then UNLV. Yeah, and that was the big thing with my father's career. The NCAA came after him his entire 31 years. In fact, 16 of them, they had official investigations going for them uh, before it was all over. But what happened is, you know, the NCAA uh, is the most powerful amateur organization in the country, maybe in the entire world. Uh, they had a, this, tyrant, uh, this dictator type of person who was the executive director, Walter Byers. And they had passed great rules in enforcement in the 1950s, and it applied to the kids back then. They were kids from affluent families that could pay uh, for extra things uh, that they needed in college. But from the 60s on, basketball and football had been dominated by the poor inner-city African-American kids that didn't have any money at their homes, let alone take any discretionary income to college. And these rules couldn't apply to them. I mean, I talk about, in the book, we recruited a guy named Richie Adams from Fort Apache in the Bronx in New York, the worst area in the entire country to live in. He lived in a high-rise with his grandma, and they had no money. How does Richie get out to UNLV to go to school? It's a violation if you pay for it, but of course somebody paid for it. They do that at every single school in the country. Uh, when they get to school, they don't have any money to go on a date or to go out to eat, to, to uh, buy a, a new clothing. I can go on and on. But my father felt these rules were wrong. He felt it was discriminatory against these, these players that were doing so much for the, uh, the, the NC2A and that they should be treated just like other college kids. In fact, right now, the NC2A, uh, two or three years ago, passed uh, a regulation that allows schools to uh, give more money to the players now so they can live like the rest of the students in, in college. That's what my father fought for his entire career. But because he challenged the NC2A and they had that dictator of a executive director, Walter Byers, they came after my father and they wouldn't stop until they actually forced him out of UNLV. At, at 60 years old, they forced him out of UNLV when he was at the top of his profession. Right. And then and then it was then he he dabbled in the NBA for about 30 games. I guess he was at the Spurs and that just didn't yeah, work out. 20, but, 20 games. <laughs> it was the shortest stint ever in the NBA. 
and and he just didn't have a desire to go back, or what was? And then what was the choice? Of, what was the thinking of going to Fresno State to finish off his career? Well, Fresno State's where he went to college, where he met my mother, and there's a large Armenian community there. And when that job opened up, they called my father and asked if he, if he was interested, and, and that's one of the jobs that he you know, always had wanted. His entire, in fact, in my book, I outlined how he wanted to take that job in the 1960s when it opened, but they wouldn't give it to an Armenian at the time. Uh, so he, he was able to go back to a community that he loved, and they, they were great to my father. Again, the NC trade just continued to hound us. I was his assistant there, just continued to hound us there over uh, really stupid and, and minor violations and uh, dismantled the teams. But we had, you know, they, we made NC, we made the postseason seven times, NC trade twice, not like UNLV, but better than they had at uh, Fresno State before or since. And you also sued the N- the NCAA, and they actually paid you money, $2.5 million. You're one of the first people to actually sue the yeah. NCAA and get money for their investigation of you. It, it actually was the first time they had to pay a large settlement, and my mom and father were the ones uh, doing that before I was um, involved. And, uh, you know, we think about that, how, how wonderful that was at the time, but shoot, $2.5 million now is about months of a salary for Coach K or Calipari now. You know, it's not a lot of money when you think about it. And what they did to my father by prematurely ending his career years in advance, uh, it, it didn't make up for it for sure. We're talking to Danny Tarkanian, the son of Jerry Tarkanian, the legendary UNLV basketball coach who has this book out, Rebel with a Cause. Uh, tremendous book uh, detailing the story. I, 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 this is like the this is the book on Jerry Tarkanian. I mean, it's a, it's a, he's a, a very interesting guy, and you're the probably the perfect person to write about this. Um, just give me a story. Sure, of, give me a story. A, a story about his recruiting because you spent a lot in the book about, and they were amazing. Like the, what the steps he would go and how. How he would ingratiate himself with these players. I mean, he truly was. Uh, uh, I mean, he had no resources at Long Beach State, and, and even at UNLV. And he's going against all the big boys, and he's getting some of these these players when at the, when he identified them earlier. But like, talk about how he was get these players in, over maybe at the UCLA's and the John Woodens. Well, most of these players um, had some problems off the court, and UCLA wasn't going after. But some of the other big schools were that that would have gotten him. Uh, I talk about his recruitment of uh, George Trapp, when, uh, who was, his brother played for my father, and the, the parents loved my dad. And then uh, University of Detroit got involved and, and was going to steal him for, from under my dad's nose. So he flew back to Detroit. He spent a full week living in the home of the Traps. Imagine that, a coach staying in a home of the parents of the player for a full week in the middle of the ghetto, taking long walks as the only white person in the neighborhood, sitting on the porch, sipping teeth, talking to them, and then going to an all-black gym, watching George play at night. He did it for a full week before they, uh, George finally uh, decided uh, to come to Long Beach State. The best story that I, I put in the book I think about his recruitment was when he was recruiting Sidney Green in New York City, and Sid wanted to go to UCLA. and uh, Sid had committed to UNLV, but UCLA came in late and, and flew him out for a visit, and he came back He said he was going to go to UCLA. So my dad flew out to New York. He went into Sid's apartment uh, where there was no air conditioning. He was sweat profusely, and Sid's mother was there. Sid was there, and a guy that was a guy named Winston that was my dad's friend that was there. Winston went. Sid was waiting for UCLA's head coach, Larry Brown, to call. Uh, and so Winston went into the kitchen, and he kept taking the phone off the hook until that beeping sound came in. They put it back on and take it off again. But one call finally got through, and it was Larry Brown and Winston yelled out to Sid, Hey, Sid, it's the Oregon coach. What should I tell him? <laughs> Sid said, I don't want to talk to that guy. So Winston told Larry Brown he doesn't want to talk to you and hung up, and that's how we end up getting Sidney Green. 
That's amazing. Well, I've only met your dad one time. I was at the Final Four, and I was with two of my friends, and he was in the gym. This was after he was done coaching, and he was at the gym working out on the Stairmaster with the, with his famous towel around him, and he actually paused, <laughs> and I got a picture uh, with him and my friends around him while we did the picture with him on the Stairmaster, which is one of my favorite pictures of all time, and it was so gracious of him. He actually said, yeah, just take it right now. He was so cool about that, so I really appreciate that. But we've been My dad was a great people person he loved to be around sports fans and when you go to the final four he's the only coach that would be down there in the lobby with all the other fans what other coaches would be up in the room well thanks a lot danny for coming on i really appreciate it i encourage my listeners to if you if you have any interest in college basketball rebel with the cause it's a great college basketball book and it, it details the all of the struggles jerry tarkady had against the ncaa but also the fact that he was one of the winningest coaches in the history of the ncaa so thanks a lot danny for coming on well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And if they want to buy the book, then go to Amazon. Thank you and have a good uh, rest of the day.